This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Now, there's even more to that. I mean, this already just having this sort of document of that first step into CBGB's and like talking about the bathroom and what what cave it was and seeing the drummer from Blondie sniffing cocaine off a table at CBG was like all that just blew my little 13-year-old mind. Hello and welcome to another episode of Live Through That, the companion podcast to my book of the same name where I look at influential musicians of the 80s and 90s and where they are today. I'm Mike Kippel, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of the artists I feature in the book, as well as artists whom I love and respect. And we're back after a brief summer hiatus. Coming up this season, we'll have episodes featuring some of my favorites of the 90s, Juliana Hatfield, Corin Tucker from Sleater Kinney, R.E.M.'s manager Burtis Downs, and so many more. But today, it's September and back to school time. Kate Schellenbach, the original Beastie Boys drummer and the drummer for Luscious Jackson, has the perfect story for these first days of school. She goes way back to her first day of high school in New York City and finding her passion for drums in the clubs of late 70s New York City along the way. So the moment I want to talk about is the event that made me realize that I could probably pursue music as a career or a pastime, and specifically drums. Um, I don't think a lot of girls at, at the time that I grew up uh, considered that drums would possibly be an instrument that they could play. I grew up in a household where music was always around. Uh, my parents played a lot of classical, jazz, folk music, you know, mixed maybe some Broadway cast albums, that kind of thing. And uh, I joined the choir when I was seven. My sister had already joined, and I just basically wanted to do whatever she did. The school choir, this was in New York City. We lived in the West Village. Um, and the school choir was in this Episcopalian church, really pretty place. And I was really drawn to the music and the harmonizing and all that, that kind of stuff. But I was also really drawn to the whole idea of like putting on a show. And I learned how to do rehearsals and uh, work with a leader and, and work with other people and what songs are we going to do and who's going to sing what and what's going to go where. And then uh, there was something really cool about that whole vibe of being like 
part of the Sunday services, but then also being sort of like a VIP because the choir got to like be backstage and wear special costumes. And, and we even got paid. We got paid like 25 cents per Sunday or something like that, 10 cents a rehearsal, which is money we all just used to buy candy. So music was always sort of a thing uh, for me growing up. Um, my mom was very musical. She played guitar. She wrote songs. My sister was a great singer. And growing up in the West Village uh, in the late 70s, you know, it was a very liberal time. And, you know, kids were sort of able to just kind of run around the city and run free. And I remember like walking to school by myself at that around that age, seven, eight, eight. And, you know, we would take the subway and take the bus, all that kind of stuff. Now, jumping to around the age of 12 and 13, I started discovering, you know, at the time, sort of late punk, new wave music. Um, I feel like my sister had friends at camp who played uh, albums by like The Clash and the B-52s and that kind of stuff. And a little bit of that stuff was being played on the radio at the time. And this, like 1979, I was 13 and about to enter high school. And this is like this time between junior high school and high school where it's like really an opportunity opportunity to reinvent yourself. You get to be like present your, a new persona, a new style, new new interest, the whole thing. And I remember I cut my hair, I got bangs, which seemed very radical at the time. Um, I was really nervous about it. And also it was like starting to get into bands like The Clash and Blondie, B-52s. And I became devoted to like punk and new wave music. Also in 1979, like all these incredible albums were released. Like The the Clash's first, uh, the American release of their first album, The Clash, came out. Blondie's Eat to the Beat, B-52's first record. Gang of Four, Entertainment, X-Ray Specs, Germ-Free Adolescence, Buzzcocks, had a singles going steady, Susie the Banshees. And I was somehow like, I was hearing all these records, I was starting to bite records. And I also started shopping at all these like downtown new wave boutiques, like Unique Clothing and Canal Jeans, places like that. And a lot of thought went into the outfit I was going to wear on the first day of high school, because of course, this was me, my debut to this new set of kids. And, you know, I wanted to seem cool and I wanted to, like, debut this, like, new wave Kate. Um, and I remember really, like, really being put out by this whole situation because the monkey wrench was that I had broken my shoulder that summer uh, on a bike trip. And I had it, my arm was in, like, a, a soft cast. So I had to wear my shirt over my, my uh, arm, which is, like, a really awkward thing. I didn't want to be like, oh, there's this new kid who's got one arm. It's, like, not the best look for high school. I remember picking out. A striped overdyed boat neck sailor's shirt, like overdyed painter's pants, like teal, I think, white go-go boots, and after like a lot of de- deliberation, um, an Elvis Costello pin that was on my my shirt. Um, but this was like, you know, wearing these clothes, it really like uh, you could broadcast to the other kids at high school what you were into, obviously, and then you know, like minds kind of came together. I started becoming friendly with the other sort of punk rock new wave kids at school and hearing about bands and that kind of thing. The other thing I, once I started getting into Blondie and reading about bands like that and Talking Heads, B-52s, reading about them in um, like the Village Voice or other magazines, uh, I realized that these bands were, had played and come from clubs that were still in existence and that were just like blocks from where I was living like CBGBs and Max's Kansas City, another club called Hurrah's, the Palladium, like all these venues. So 
I uh, remember the, so this, this, this story is about the first time I ever went to CBGB's and I was 13. And the, the best thing about this is that I found, um, we used to, we, you know, everyone used to pass notes in school. And that was another way you connected to people, you know, pre-cell phone, obviously you couldn't text. So you would write notes and slip them to a friend or slip them to somebody that you were interested in getting to know. And there was a girl that uh, I had known from, from uh, junior high school who was also kind of going into this new wave punk rock uh, change. And I sent her a note about the first time I ever went to CBGB's and saw a band that had a girl drummer that made me want to become a drummer. And I'm going to read you the note because I have it. I found it. I think I passed it to her and then she wrote some comments and passed it back. So that's why I ended up with, with the actual note. This is from November 13th, 1979. Here I am writing a really long letter and you sit there absorbing all of what Mr. Vogel says while I fail all my tests and you get off with an 82, fart breath. First, Emily called me up asking if I wanted to go see the Speedies concert. I said, okay, because I had nothing better to do. I got all ready, bringing cereal and everything. But when we got there, they asked us for our IDs. Now I'm just going to jump in here and explain. Speedies was this like very pop group who I guess I had never seen them before, but I guess that their little thing was they were very like bubblegum pop and people would come and throw sugar cereal at them, which seems like a really bad idea. Um, so they were playing at a club called Great Gildersleeves, which was kind of had a little bit of like a bridge and tunnel mafia vibe. And I guess they were really strict about carding people. So, and this was just up the street from CBGB's. All right, so we got there, they asked us for IDs. And boy, did that, back to the letter, boy, did that got Emily all upset. I suggested we go to CBGB's to see the student teachers. After about 15 minutes of everybody, Emily and her friends calling her, calling parents and reassuring them that they will call every hour on the hour. We finally got there. When we first got there, the sign on the door said two drink minimum. So this girl named Sarah brought a screwdriver. Now I'm going to jump in again. We're 13 and we're going to, we're going to a club. We're going to CBGB's famed club. They didn't, they didn't ID us at the door. And this was like my first introduction to the fact that most New York clubs, even the, and the drinking age at the time was 18, most, most doormen wouldn't ask you for ID. So in fact, not only would they not ask you for an ID, this place had so supposedly a two drink minimum, which I, you know, after this first visit, I realized that it wasn't really a thing. So this girl buys a screwdriver. I think she ordered a screwdriver because she must have heard the name screwdriver in a movie. Cause like, how the fuck would you know what, a, what drinks are called when you're 13? You know, like, I think we, you, you knew what like a tall boy was, but I don't think anybody knew what a mixed drink was. But so anyway, screwdriver it was a disgusting drink. Um, back to the letter. That made her feel sick. So we left for a while and walked around. She felt better. And we went back just in time for this first set of student teachers. We got there too late to get good seats. So I sat on the floor getting my pants all dirty. Now, uh, CBGBs used to have chairs and tables. Like, I think they were just nailed into the floor at the front of the stage, but those got taken away. Student teachers are really good. The lead singer is so sexy. After the set was finished, we went, walked backstage to see Laura, if Laura Davis, the drummer, remembered me from St. Luke's Choir. Now, the drummer from, from student teachers, I don't, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how I heard about them, but I think it must have been from somebody at, at my high school. Um, and the drummer had gone and sang in the same choir as I did. All right, back to the letter. Um, she remembered me, sort of. She remembered my last name started with an S. 
and that was fun. Emily and I went back, went to the bathroom, which is more like a cave, came back up, sat down, and another group, Colors, played. They were really good. They were an English group who played dance rock. It was just too loud. After they were through, I saw Clem Burke, the drummer from Blondie. I almost died. In fact, I did die, and I'm a ghost now. Okay, enough of, enough of that. No, really, I was kind of embarrassed about getting his autograph, but I finally did. And up close, he's kind of chubby, but he's still got that Paul McCartney kind of cuteness. He was kind of surprised that I actually knew his name, but he signed my piece of sweaty paper on my back and asked me if I, if I liked the group and the new album. There were so many things I wanted to ask him, but I was too embarrassed, you know? Well, we went outside, and when he came back in, Clem was in the doorway, and he remembered me. He said, hi, Kate, and I smiled and waved. Isn't that groovy? All through the night, I saw him drink beer, smoking pot, and sniffing cocaine. It's again, I'm 13 when I'm writing this letter. Anyway, the student teachers had another set, and they were all excited. Laura threw her drumsticks into the audience. They hit me. Ow. They went off stage, came back for an encore. They were even more excited, and she threw her sticks again. And a guy dropped his guitar. No, first he broke a string, then he dropped his guitar. It was a lot of fun. Finally, Em and I left and got a cab, went home at 3.45 a.m., that's all folks and that's how I ended the letter now there's even more to the I mean this already just having this sort of document of that first step into CBGB's and like talking about the bathroom and what what cave it was and seeing the drummer from Blondie sniffing cocaine off a table at CBGB's like all that just blew my little 13 year old mind but I think the thing you know a couple things like knowing that I could just walk a few blocks down from my house and then walk into this place where there was music uh, played by kids who were just a couple of years older than me um, playing, played well. Uh, and then also see like one of my favorite bands, the drummer from my, one of my favorite bands is sitting there. It just like, was like, okay, this is what I, this is where I want to be. Um, and I remember just the feeling of seeing that band uh, everything just, you know, like the, the, that, that feeling like the hair stands up on your arms and you're just like, I, I, I always want to feel this feeling and seeing, you know, kids in the audience just like dancing and singing along. And it just, it seemed like this is, this is where I want to be forever. Now, the thing that really, really stuck with me, the drummer, Laura Davis was a girl, obviously is a girl. And she was maybe three, two or three years older than me. We had sang in the choir together. So we had this connection. And also the band had a, a girl playing bass. Her name was Lori Reese. So just seeing these two women, your young women, I, they couldn't have been more than like 17, uh, playing their instruments and being on stage and being so cool and looking so cool and they were dressed cool and they had great haircuts and dark um, eyeshadow. And I don't know, it just really just, that was it. I think, and I'm not sure if it happened in this case, but. The fact that um, Laura threw her drumsticks, I might have gotten one. I might have picked one up and taken it home. I reached out to Laura Davis, who wrote a book about her time in the student teachers called The Girl in the Back, to hear her memories of that time. Kate and her sister and I and my sister, we kind of semi-grew up together. We went to grade school together in, in, in Manhattan, and um, we kind of parted for high school. But um, 
so we have known, knew each other and have for a long time. When I found out that she felt this way about seeing me and it inspiring her, it was many, 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 many years later. But in terms of, I guess, one of, and also, I don't know if you read the book, but Georgia Hubley, who wrote the foreword, she's the drummer for the band Yola Tengo. She also had the same experience in inspiring her to become a drummer. The funny thing is, when I think about it, when we formed the band, the student teachers, the only reason I really wanted to play, the well, there are two main reasons I wanted to play the drums. <laughs> One, obviously, is that I always was into the rhythm and the beat of any given song, like most people are in rock and roll. It's kind of the center of rock. But it was also because I wanted to be in the back. And I know it sounds crazy because the name of my book is The Girl in the Back, but it is kind of ironic and true that I wanted to be in the back. But then go on to the next thought, which actually came up when we were make, uh, forming the band between me and Maury, who was my bass player. We loved the idea of the female power, <laughs> the female uh, element. And that even at that age, we were 15, 16, 17 years old. And um, as we're forming the band, I was like, wouldn't it be great if the rhythm section is the female section? Meanwhile, we had seen Tina Weymouth, obviously, uh, playing. And we were very close with the band, which I don't know if you know them, many people do, but you probably should, called The Erasers. And The Erasers were all female except for one guy, but they were all girls, female drummer, female uh, bass player, and female singer, uh, Susan Springfield. Lori and I happened to have been their roadies. We worked as their roadies for a while before we ended up forming our own band, Student Teachers. So we were very in touch with, maybe not as aware as we would be if we were a little older, but we were very tied into and in touch with the female contingent in rock and roll, not just being in the front of the band and singing, but being in the back. I I'm just was so touched and impressed by what she said about being inspired by me. I didn't realize it until many years later when I learned about it. Um, and then, you know, all the wonderful and incredible things she's done as a drummer as well as Georgia. So I'm just very touched that they were inspired. It's very nice. Somewhere I had gotten a, a snare drum and set it up at home. This must have been after this, actually. Uh, somebody, somehow, I don't know where it came from. I got a snare drum, and then I set that up with a bunch of big boxes, and I had found a drumstick or two and started just playing along to records. And this was sort of the proto drum kit for me and, like, my first foray into, like, playing music. I also had, my mom had a guitar, acoustic guitar, and I would just pick uh pick the, the strings and try to play along to like TV themes like uh, uh, Get Smart or Batman. All that like afternoon TV that was on, I tried to like figure out what the, how the theme songs went. So in my mind, I was like, okay, it can either be a bass player or a drummer. And that was basically from seeing student teachers. Um, and I just like, I had to see these women playing in order to, to like believe that that could be me, me up there. Um, after that, I started uh, anytime the student teacher student student teachers played. 
I would go see them and they played all these clubs. They played CBGBs, they played Max's, where else did they played Irving Plaza. Like I, I would just go see them. And then I found out like one of them worked, one of the guys in the band worked at this clothing store on um, St. Mark's called Manic Panic, where they sold Manic Panic hair dye and all that. So it was just like really like cemented this whole scene for me. And, uh, you know, I, I think I just grew up in such a, I was so fortunate to grow up in a, in a time in the city in New York where everything was kind of free and easy. No, like parents weren't checking up on us. They couldn't track us by cell phones. You really had to like do some footwork to connect with other people. Like you'd go to record stores and see like flyers that were hanging around what bands were playing, talk to friends. And uh, it just became like this little sort of investig investigative life that I had to like find more people like myself. So I was playing drums on the snare and the boxes and the make, then the boxes were getting too many holes in them. And, um, but my mom could see that this was something that I was passionate about. And just out like the luck of, I don't know what, I feel like I have had a lucky life, but this is one of the, one of the main luck things that happened. Um, a friend, a, like distant friend of my mom's was going out of town for like a year and they had a drum kit and they needed a place to store the kit. And somehow this information got to my mom and my mom said that they could store the drums at my house, at our house, if I was allowed to play on them. And so all of a sudden there was a drum kit in the house, which was obviously a huge deal and changed my life because then I could really play along to records. I could tape myself and my little Panasonic tape player and I can even have friends over to like jam and that kind of thing. So for about a year, I had this kit. Uh, I didn't know anything about it. I never took lessons. I just like, you know, luckily punk rock was simple enough that I could play along to like Damaged Goods by uh, Gang of Four and kind of figure out the beat because it wasn't that difficult. And you didn't really have to be a virtuoso to play punk music and new wave music. You just sort of had to be able to keep a steady beat. And I guess I had enough choir training and piano training in my life that I could, you know, understand how things worked. So I had this drum kit. Like I said, I didn't really know much about it, how it worked, how to set it up. And I remember, and I would find, I basically go, go gigs all the time. And then after the show, I would just scour the floor and I would find drumsticks, like drummers, I guess, were notorious for throwing their sticks out into the audience. Nothing, I, I never did that. I just felt like, I don't know how anyone could afford to throw drumsticks out into the audience. But anyway, I found enough sticks but I remember playing the kit and at some point I cracked a head on the snare drum and I was so upset because I didn't know anything about drums. I didn't know how to change it. I didn't know you could change the head. I just thought I broke the drum. Um, drum heads are just like a, you know, a piece of plastic that can be swapped out for like 15 bucks. But at the time I didn't know this. And I was kind of like New York kid, too cool for school. Didn't want to let anybody know that I didn't know something. So I was like afraid to ask. And the music stores uh, where you could get like a new drum head and that kind of stuff, uh, they were all lo located on this one block in Midtown Manhattan, I think 45th Street. And all if you ever stepped foot in one of these places, like it was super intimidating. It was like all these like long haired dudes who were just like, like noodling on the electric guitar and just like such snobs. 
and you'd walk in there as a little girl. Basically, they saw you and they'd be just like, oh, what do you want? But somehow I found some like nice dude and he just was like, oh, yeah, you, you don't have to replace the whole drum. You know, I'll sell you this head for, for 10 bucks. So I uh, eventually, you know, I, I would just go to shows and I watched the drummers and watch what they were doing. And, you know, we didn't there was no MTV. There wasn't like like music videos where I could watch. So I really just had to like do all the research I could just by watching, watching, watching. Um, being that I was watching from from the stage, I'm sorry, watching from the audience, I taught myself to play backwards, which is I didn't realize until much later when I started taking lessons um, because I was like mirroring the pe person on the stage. But anyway, I, I learned enough to be able to start jamming with people. And, um, you know, eventually that led to me meeting people in the Beastie Boys. We started a band, meeting people in Luscious Jackson. We started a band. And that's a whole, that's a whole other story. But uh, that's my moment that changed my life seeing these women playing music on stage at CBGB's at 13, a friend getting sick from drinking a screwdriver and watching Clem Burke do Coke off the table that's no longer there. That's my story. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you to Kate Schellenbach for sharing the story and for finding that original letter. Thanks also to Laura Davis. We'll have a longer episode with her later in the season. And a reminder that you can also buy my book, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please subscribe so that you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship. The studio behind American Scandal comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.